You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're bringing you an episode on computational thinking. Conrad Wolfram directs global strategy for Wolfram Research, a leader in computational resources. For the last decade, Wolfram has been encouraging educators to teach math as if computers existed. He wants teachers and policymakers to stop fixating on calculations like long division and factoring polynomial equations and start focusing on computational thinking. He lives in Oxford, England, so you'll notice that he adds an S to math. His new book, The Math's Fix, is the foundation for a revolution in education. Let's listen in as he talks to Tom. Conrad Wolfram, welcome to the Gaining Smart Podcast. Uh, Great to be here. It is so exciting to have you on. Uh, I, I stayed up late finishing your new book called uh, The Maths Fix, uh, An Education Blueprint for the AI Age. Um, thanks for the book and uh, your contributions to mathematics. Well, that's very nice to hear because, of course, it's early days. So it's nice to hear uh, sort of uh, fresh readers and uh, how it got on. So, so if I managed to keep you up for, for that reason, I guess I'm pretty grateful for that. <laughs> Your family does math. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the the family business to give us a, a, an indication that you know this topic pretty well. So my brother founded just over 32 years ago, 20, uh, at least the first edition of our technology came out, Mathematica, in 1988. And in a sense, that was a way to do mathematics on computer. And then I joined up as I left college uh, to start the European part of that. And I read math and physics uh, in Cambridge in the UK. And uh, ever since then, we've been trying to figure out how to get computers to do better at helping people in the world use this power of computation, which we think is such a great way of enabling, in a sense, better decisions in the world. And uh, and that's sort of the, the, the background, which has put me right in the center of watching how millions of folks uh, in the real world actually use mathematics and in all its ways and how it's really moved us forward in the last 30, 30 plus years uh, and has kind of brought me to, to the point of thinking how the education might work around that. Conrad, what is the Wolfram language? So Wolfram language is, is a way to write down technical ideas for a computer. So at one level, it's a programming language. Like other programming languages, you might say Python is a, is a popular one at the moment. But what we try to do with Wolfram Language is make it a couple of other things as well. We might try to make it high enough level so that in a sense, as a human, you might want to write down what you're saying in that way. Uh, so in traditional mathematics, you write down funny symbols to represent things that have been born over several hundred years. And I see the Wolfram language as a way to write down a more general set of, in a sense, what you'd like to describe computationally. So it, it's a program language in the sense that it executes things on a computer. And, and we think we do that very nicely at a high level and with many different. Uh, and we've also got a huge number of algorithms sort of built in, ready to, ready to roll. So we think that's all very nice, of course. Um, but it's also this way of describing precisely, abstractly, a world of computation as well. I think uh, your brother and I are um, both about the same age, and we both um, e- experienced in our 40-year careers uh, the information age when we began to incorporate 
computing technology into every aspect of life, it it does feel like we're a couple of years into a new age, the one that comes after the information age, where we're begin to beginning to incorporate uh, machine learning uh, and big data into every aspect of life. Uh, maybe you could reflect both on uh, how human beings have uh, begun to incorporate computing technology, uh, and 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 then. Secondly, what's new about this new era that uh, we're in today, uh, at least specific to computation? Yeah, these are big questions. I mean, let me maybe take the second one first more. I mean, I think we're into what I term in my book quite a lot, the AI age, or some people call the fourth industrial revolution. And I suppose my mind, what marks it out is we've got a new era where we've really sharing intelligence with machines. I mean, one can argue about what intelligence really is, but as a, I feel like previous industrial revolutions were really about sort of brawn, not brain, as in, you know, you're, you're physically getting a machine to do something for you to a large extent. Now we're into what appears to be this quintessentially human characteristic of intelligence, and we've, we've got machines somehow sharing that with us. And I think what's going to mark out the era we're coming into is, is, kind of who's on top doing that is it the human or the machine and how do we best manage that and and of course how do we educate people set up for that hybrid hybrid world of intelligence uh between the machine and the human and in a sense uh i suppose one of the defining issues there is what what is the in a sense what's the value add that the human can now give and what should we just leave to the machine now in a sense that's a question that's been had in every industrial revolution uh and it's but it's sort of it seems more intertwined given the nature of this one being around sort of intelligence you know another way to think about it, i sometimes term the use the phrase um computational knowledge economy i think i i started using a few years ago by which i mean you know i guess drucker came up i think it was in the 50s with knowledge economy i've never totally understood the definition but my way of thinking about that is it's where a big fraction of a developed economy is to do with knowledge rather than to do with physical action and i feel we're now into this new age where it's kind of like it's a mixture of what you can compute from the knowledge it's not really just knowing it's not knowing the raw information because that's already being handled very well by our computing machinery as well. So that's a sort of another take on on that side of it. And I suppose the real change, another change to look at is it's kind of like computing has been an add-on for for many things as it's been growing into our societies. And now it's sort of center stage. And we see this very, very directly in Wolfram because when we started as I said, 32 years ago with our first release, uh, it was like we were in the R&D departments or we were in the universities. And it was like, it's very interesting. You've got Mathematica. And that's a side issue for us in some organization, typically in large companies, for example. Now what we see is that something we're very connected with, data science, which was, is our biggest single market, what we're, you know, in a sense, that's something that is center stage. You know, most, most, 
boards are discussing data science in their organization. It's very, very central to our lives. And so I think in a sense, that's a, a change over, over our careers that we've seen this sort of center stage of computation in a way where it was, in, it was important before, but it wasn't center stage, wasn't an everyday thing for everybody. And just to add, our current uh, pandemic uh, we've seen this absolutely. I mean, we've seen the discussion, the public discourse about, you know, squashing curves and <laughs> transmission rates and all sorts of things. I, I, there, there are many things, I think, wrong with that discourse, by the way, which I hope we can help to fix with improved education. But but those things are, again, that's a center of stage that you wouldn't have seen, I think, even a decade or two ago um, in public discourse. Uh, you recently published uh, the book that I mentioned at the outset, uh, The Maths Fix, uh, An Education Blueprint for the AI Age. It, it strikes me that you make two core suppositions there. I think they're summarized in this statement that you, you propose a fundamentally new core computational subject at school with a changed assumption that computers exist and students should learn to use them. Uh, so it strikes me that there's two ideas there. One, the importance of uh, computational thinking uh, across the curriculum. And two, that we have these powerful supercomputers in our our pockets now and that we should uh, b begin to use them uh, rather than focus all of our time in school on uh, learning to hand calculate. Are, are those the two big ideas? Uh, yes, I, I, the only slight hesitation was whether I want to include any more, but yes, I think that is, I mean, in the end, we've got machines that have upended what we can do with computation beyond any previous imagination. I mean, it's, it's hard to think through history of something that's become so unbelievably mechanized. I mean, by which I mean, you know, you could have taken a mathematician, who might have spent their whole life trying to compute things that now you can compute in in you know a second or something on a machine so we have this complete upending caused by machinery but i see that as an incredibly positive powerful way to utilize this process of decision making and problem solving the mathematical process and for reasons that I, I explore a lot in the book, and, and in a sense, it's hard to understand if you just look at this you know, very dispassionately, but then it's easier to understand when you see all the pieces that haven't quite come together. We haven't managed to replicate this real world in which fundamentally, you know, computers do the calculating on almost every way and, and you know, have massively escalated what's done. And in education, for some, you know, we are in an era where we believe that the human is the is the primary calculator and that misassumption is is very as i explore in the book in my view highly detrimental to much of our population and what they can do equity many other issues it's how many people can engage in this decision making using computation both at a high level and societally what I call computational literacy. And so, yeah, my main, my main uh, focus is to, is, or, or, or thesis in a sense, is to say, if we assumed computers do the calculating in the way that 
in the in education in the way that we do in the real world we can massively uh, improve um, you know one of the most key areas of education and it's particularly key now we're entering this AI age and uh, and that's in a sense also a blueprint for how some other subjects need to think about what to do in this new hybrid um, hybrid computer human era. These are two big and important points. There's some of our listeners that are going to argue that there's still some benefit to hand calculation. I think we've both uh, dismissed that notion largely. Uh, but but this, this point that everyone in every walk of life, in every job, needs to learn uh, to think computationally, that, that seems now to be uh, irrefutably important. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do, I love the way that you think uh, that you've defined and illustrated computational thinking as uh, learning to define questions, to abstract them to uh, computable forms, uh, to compute answers, and then to interpret results. And that the learning process should really be cycles of, of this computational thinking. Did I, I get that about right? Yes. I mean, at one level, I, I want to explain, you know, computational thinking is an incredibly rich, powerful uh, thing we have to learn, and we should learn much more of and much better, and that, that can help us in our lives. And, and you know, one can go on learning that forever. At another level, it's a four-step process, more or less, as you correctly correctly mentioned, which is, you know, you're defining questions, you're trying to abstract them to this really powerful language of mathematics or computation. Um, and, and you're doing that in step two, because by putting them in an abstract form, you can take many apparently disparate questions and apply and put them in this form that we have ways to compute answers uh, from. Uh, which we've developed over hundreds of years, and we now have very good machines to do. So you're in step two, which is this abstraction. Then you're moving to, uh, in a sense, what you've done is set up the question that you want to ask, but in, a, in an abstract form. Then step three, you're taking that question and moving it to an answer. Uh, so traditionally, you might be solving an equation. You might say, you know, uh, the question is uh, x, x minus 2 equals 4, for example. And then... In step three, you're taking that and you're computing the answer. By the end of step three, you're saying, well, actually, x uh, equals six, if I've got that right. Um, and uh, then the fourth step is you're taking that abstract answer and saying, well, did six, x equals six, does that now represent something that we asked in the, you know, in the defined step? Does that, let's turn that back to the real world question we asked. Does that seem like a reasonable answer? Do we have to go... Um, through these four steps again and in fact we've sort of thought of the imagery of a helix you're going up these four steps up around this sort of helix until you get to finally a thing an answer that you think is sufficiently good that you you say fine that's my that's my answer and that's that's how i've applied the computational thinking process um, what i think is uh, i mean just alluding to the early part of your your question um you know th this is very much i think for the future in society akin to how literacy became a society-wide imperative you know and now it seems obvious that everyone should learn to read and write i mean in any developed 
society. It just seems like that's, I mean, how could you ever suggest otherwise? But that is a, you know, it's a relatively new concept. I think it dates to the sort of early, early to mid 19th century. And there were all sorts of things said then, like, you know, well, most, more or less, most of the population were too dumb to learn how to do this. Uh, I'm not quite sure in those words, but pretty much that was the focus of it. It was just impossible. You know, most people could never get to grips with it. It was just for a few highfalutin people. Uh, and it, it was also many arguments about how it wasn't really necessary, about how being miserable. The fact is, I think that has been a shining success in education. If you, you know, the idea of universal literacy and and that ability has massively improved the lot of, of humankind, I think. And I feel like computational literacy is, you know, is a similar kind of issue to that. Uh, and it feels at the moment like really you can't get most people up on this uh, to the sort of uh, issues that I'm talking about. But I think you can. Yeah. I, so I appreciate that um, that observation. And your book does a great job making the case here uh, that it's used in everyday living. It's used in technology-focused jobs. Uh, it's important for what you call um, logical mind training uh, that, that's useful in all aspects of life. Page 32 in your book is a, a great chart uh, that shows how computational literacy is increasingly important in every field. Um, I think that's lesson number one from your book that every educator should read um, the maths fix to, to fully understand the importance of computational literacy in every field. I, I, I want to turn to the flip side of this and talk about why the focus on calculation, hand calculation, has become uh, uh, so dangerous. Um, on page 87, your book says the mainstream subject has ended up being highly procedural and unconceptual while simultaneously being impractical for direct application. That strikes me as a great summary of what's happened to mathematics education. Mm -hmm. Say more about why that focus on calculation and the assessment of the ability to calculate has become so damaging. I think it's pretty, it's pretty much a perfect storm. And uh, let me see, it's, it's quite a complicated, uh, there are various ways into this. So at one level, assessments and the quantification of assessments have become the linchpin for much of certainly secondary education. And people, and, and there are good, you know, there are good reasons as well as bad reasons for this, right? So I don't want to, you know, there are reasons why this has happened that are not, you know, good people have figured out good things here. It's just that the combination of things hasn't quite. So, so we've got assessments that everybody's striving towards that rank you in a number with a number, tell you how you've done. We've also got uh, the knowledge that mathematics appears to be very important in the world for all the reasons we we've just talked about and and people people have got that message and then we've got also the fact that mathematics appears to be very right and wrong so if you put those together you can see why how you score in maths in an exam in an assessment today seems like a critical issue for your life and if you do badly in it there's a problem 
uh, and basically, you know, the suggestions if you do badly in it, uh, somehow you're not you're not as good as somebody who does good in it, does well in it. Um, so I think that's how we've had this mathematics as it currently is so at the center of this. Now, what's wrong with that? Um, the problem is that the mathematics we're teaching in schools, that the, the subject, in, in my view, as I say, is around 80% discrepant from the real world subject that I think we actually need. And that discrepancy is largely due to the fact that we're getting students to learn how to you know, calculate uh, rather than apply this four-step process we talked about using a computer to actually much harder problems, just to point out. I mean, more conceptual, harder, more intellectual problems, actually, than we're doing at the moment, just to make that clear. And so we're effectively testing them on a proxy to what they may actually do. And we're then putting huge emphasis on that test and the result of it. Now, some people may do well at the proxy anyway, and they may be great computational thinkers. They may do well at the proxy and in a sense, to some extent, we're all well and good. I think they could have spent some years learning stuff that was more useful to them. They'd probably get through the system and be able to carry on okay. Some people, you know, they're just not that good at the proxy. And they just don't have to be. Actually, it doesn't necessarily mean they're not very good computational thinkers, the sort of computational thinking I'm talking about. And so we're cutting those people out. We're saying, sorry, you can't go, certainly can't do any technical subjects. And actually, you might not be able to do any subjects, uh, uh, you know, at a good university, for example, that have not much to do with this at all. And think of all the anxiety that's caused by people failing at maths exams and having to retake them. And then you also pile on the fact that it's a very abstract subject in its current form. You know, I often cite the question, you know, when was the last time you solved a quadratic equation? I often ask government ministers and policymakers this question. When was the last time you solved a quadratic equation? Uh, if they're very quick on the mark, they're off the mark, they say, uh, oh, you know, to help my kids at school. But realistically, none of us really solve quadratic equations by hand anymore. Um, and whether you can do that doesn't need to be a, a sort of zero to 60 speed test, you know, that you'd have in your car. It, it, it doesn't necessarily mean anything about your intellect in any other way. And so it's very damaging this because I think we're cutting a lot of people out. I think we're particularly doing badly with people in lower socioeconomic groups who often what marks out characteristics in those groups, I think, is low confidence, uh, you know, a, uh, something where you need to see it attached to your real life quicker, not necessarily because there's anything wrong with their abstract thinking or abilities, just because necessarily they don't have the confidence, the background to push through that uh, as people who are sort of from a, a, a you know, higher socioeconomic group might be able to naturally. And so that cuts all of those people out from doing this as its subject, even in its own right, but more importantly, from being able to apply this to real life. And so we've kind of ended up with this proxy um, that's that's sort of all empowering, you know, all all discriminating, so to speak, on who can go further. And and one of the things I point to in the book is um, there is an example of where this happened before, uh, perhaps not so familiar in the U.S., but certainly in British schools and many European schools in the 1950s, Latin and classics assumed a similar position. In order to enter a good university in the UK, you had to have studied Latin and be good at it all the way through till you were 18 years old. And now it seems sort of crazy. I mean, if you don't happen to be good at learning your Latin words, 
or you know knowing how to decline a verb it doesn't seem like it has much to do with whether you're going to be a great biologist and that's correct it doesn't but yeah that was a thing that you had to do it, it was a that was a milestone you had to get past in order to get through and and that is why i think this is so dangerous in the world and it's particularly dangerous because i think that much of the discourse political discourse is now you know, has a computational element to it and so if we cut a large fraction of the population out uh you can see we're cutting them out from much of the decision making and that has other consequences Hey listeners, Jessica here. I wanted to just take a quick break from today's episode to let you know that Getting Smart offers advertising opportunities on our podcast and on our website. Do you need to get the word out about a new campaign or initiative? Want more school leaders and teachers to plan for the new school year with your EdTech product in mind? If you're interested in sponsorship or want to learn more about ad placements, just shoot me an email at info at gettingsmart.com. All right, let's get back to the podcast. I, I really appreciate that argument. Um, and in, in your book, you um, you make a number of uh, super important points about this. Um, historically, I, I took a lot of math uh, in college because I uh, was an engineer. I didn't really do any interesting problems until I was a senior mm-hmm. uh, when I had had about six uh, math classes. I found the same about engineering. I didn't really get into any applied work until I was well on into my studies. And that was because you delay things until you've been able to do advanced um, calculation. And you point out on page 132 that it's it's crazy that we do that. We should actually reorder by the complexity of the problem, not the calculation. And you made some great points that 10-year-olds can use some of the uh, the, the concepts of, uh, of linear algebra uh, to con- conceptualize a problem. And that's n- not a, at all a challenge because you can do those calculations by computer, but we should, we should be inviting young people into increasingly complicated problems and not gating those by how difficult it is to do the hand calculations associated with them. Mm-hmm. Let, let me maybe... Uh, sort of broaden on that as well i think um yeah i mean this reordering is really exciting and and one of the questions i ask is why don't we teach machine learning to you know in primary schools in in uh, you know to pretty low age group kids um actually machine learning as a thing to understand how you use it it's pretty simple right. i mean it's almost how they how they learn stuff how we all learn stuff you know building a new neural network totally different thing we have to separate and we have to be very careful to separate the, the building of new things, new new techniques from the use use of them. Um, once you have a computer actually doing a calculation, you can separate those more. There's a layer of automation. So there's no reason not to introduce the, uh, you know, things that, uh, you know, introduce uh, uh, topics that may require complicated computation under the surface but may be conceptually quite simple to understand and i would also put calculus the use of calculus um actually quite just uh, talking about rates of change is is rates of change areas under curves you know how how much i've got a curved desk in front of me here um i'm not sure what function it was made with but uh you know how much material do i need to to make this desk 
I mean, it's not hard for a, for a 10-year-old to understand the problem. It's nasty to do the actual integral because, you know, that leads to a lot of manipulation, but we don't need to do that anymore. Right. And so I think what we, we're into an era, which is very exciting, where we can do a lot of complex problems early on, which appear to relate to the, which we do relate to the real world much more closely than what we've been doing. So we can start from real world actual problems that might be of interest to, to, to the student, and then we can work something out. And as opposed to starting from something very abstract, and if you're very lucky after you've done your equation solving, you might be able to have it hooked up, uh, you know, to the real world somehow, by which point you've already lost, you know, three quarters of the students. All right. I, w I want to make a couple of, uh, this is sort of a, a lightning round of, of topics to help make this tangible for people. On page um, 90 of your book, you, you take on the question of time tables uh, and if it's still useful to, uh, to memorize time tables. Um, you have a common sense answer to that question? Uh, I think it's still somewhat useful, but I wouldn't put them on any pedestal. I think one of the things that there are, I don't say we shouldn't learn anything by hand. Right. My, I have two discriminators for that. One is, is it useful today? Is it practically useful? And I use timetables for estimating things in my head. I don't think they're anything very exciting, but that's what I do. And so I find that you know somewhat useful up to about 10 times. Another reason potentially for learning things by hand is because it really does conceptually empower something further ahead. We got to be extremely careful of that one. I think there's a lot of mis, mis, you know, representation where it's like it, it, it claims that that's the case, but really that isn't empowering something further forward. You could just learn the thing further forward by itself. What so? What about fractions, uh, proportion, proportionality, and mm -hmm. and and manipulating fractions? How much? Okay, that that's interesting. So proportionality, I says, you know, is a is a core issue. Just by the way, just back to multiplication. You know, the idea of multiplication very important. The idea of proportionality. You know, uh, half of this. Now, then you start asking questions about the details. Like, okay, when was the last time I added a half and a third in real life? Uh, it's pretty rare. I've done anything like that. On the other hand, I might ask, you know, given that uh, this wall is 7.3, uh, you know, oh, in, I'm in UK, so 7.3 meters, uh, meters long, what's, you know, what's a third of the way along that? So multiplying a decimal by a fraction, I think, useful, but I could do that on a computer. The main right. thing I really need to understand is how to set the problem up. Um, so the setup of the problem is typically much more important than the co computation. And by the way, on the times tables, even though I think it's somewhat useful, it's much more critical people understand when they would use a times table than how to compute it. Yeah, I, this is a great set of points because I, I think um, in the U.S. It, we start to trip kids up in uh, the intermediate grades, uh, fifth grade, sixth grade, with um, in ex extensive fraction manipulation uh, before they move into algebra. I think this is the beginning of computation um, taken to a bizarre extreme. Uh, and and uh, around the same time, we teach long division, mm -hmm. which I think you, you don't have much patience for. 
uh, well, not only not much patience, I've never actually learned how to do it, even though I have a degree in mathematics <laughs> from Cambridge University, uh, not the formal long division. Right. It's ridiculous. But, but, I mean, that's a, that that's we, a key thing where you really don't see people doing that anymore. No, it's ridiculous that we torture kids with long division. And, and as we move into algebra, uh, what about factoring polynomials? How, how much of that is of use? I think it's it's pretty limited. I mean, I think that, again, you've got to... What, one thing we found in thinking about this is you've got to pick through each thing very, very carefully. And and I have a nice anecdote, I, an anecdote I enjoyed when I was with a, a real cabbie in London, uh, a taxi driver who was asking uh, me, what what's the role of algebra then? Uh, it's a very good question. I think that the setup of our algebra is a tool set, in my view, alongside machine learning, alongside data, various data science tool sets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have many, many tool sets. And by the way, we only normally deal with a very small fraction of education. That's another problem which we need to in, in, enlarge. Algebra is a tool set. You need to know how to use the tool set in sense of when to use it, how you'd set up a problem, abstract to it, what sort of problems are, are relevant, when it goes wrong, what tends to trip it up. But once you set up the problem and you have ways to verify it, you leave the computer to do it. So actually the details of knowing what factorization is might be useful in solving a problem. Actually the details of exactly what you do to, 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 to action it, typically not. Right, the very important point that algebraic reasoning, algebraic thinking, the ability to break a problem into component parts to understand what you know and what you don't know, to understand which variables impact other variables and how, those are critical. And we use uh, we use yeah. those all day, every day, in every walk of life, right? Absolutely. And we're not doing much of that in high school math at the moment because what no, we're doing is we're teaching kids order of procedures. Right. Right. And we're we're teaching them things that we can assess quickly on a quiz. That's right. And and one of the things I, I you know, there's a messiness in real life. Right. That, that, I mean, one of the things I, mathematicians often really don't like me for saying this, but I, I say it anyway, which is that before computers, maths had a fairly limited scope of what it could help you with. I mean, it was important, but limited. You know, there's certainly hard sciences like physics. It was very successful for for a long time. Uh, it was successful for accountancy. It wasn't very successful for things like biology because the start, the world was too messy to deal with in what you could hand the set of tool sets and possible things you could work out when you were hand calculating. So computers have liberated mathematics from that relatively narrow scope. And in fact, that liberation in the real world is exactly what's driven people's wish to have so many more students educated in its in its in its scope uh but unfortunately we then decided in education we're going to limit down to more or less what we can hand calculate which basically strips out almost all the context of the real world that's that that's driven the use of mathematics in the last 50 or so years so it's a, it's a funny piece of logic there um that we've ended up with uh, conrad I was struck at many uh, points during your book that this is an exciting way to think about education. One is introducing young people to increasingly complex problems and, and creating the, the muscle memory of how to uh, apply these steps of, of computational thinking. 
But it struck me that it's a more challenging way to teach than the rote memorization and rule application uh, that we've thought about mathematics. Um, so how, how do you, what's your take on that? Is this a more challenging way to teach? Um, I think there are new challenges, yes. And I suppose it probably is more challenging as well as new. Um, I mean, in the end, we've got to step humans up to a higher level of of ability to reason and think because we've now got machines that do the lower level. In order to do that, it's going to be you know somewhat harder in education because we're trying to access a higher level of sophistication, and that's going to need uh, more sophistication in terms of what we do at school. However. Um, I mean, several things I say. First, first thing to say, by the way, is I think teachers, humans, are very important in this process. Um, I, it's very important not to muddle up computers being used to automate pedagogy in some way. And, and there are ways, by the way, computers can really help in 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 that. But that doesn't throw out the teacher in any way. I think that the the need for teachers probably, if anything, greater in order to to work with the more nuanced issues and things uh more nuanced issues and and challenges that we face um i think there are a few mitigating factors here that i think do help i mean one is that it's extremely difficult in my view to teach a a very abstract subject that students don't connect to the real world very easily and that's what we're asking our maths teachers to do at the moment right you know, if you ask the question, why, why, is the t- why am I learning how to, you know, our earlier example, how to solve a quadratic equation, it's actually fairly hard to answer. That. And indeed, those teachers often in their real lives are not really using those things, whereas teachers of, of English language are using English language in their real lives. They're, they're reading and writing and, and doing other things. Um, so I think that the, the computational thinking I'm talking about or maths I'm talking about is starts from the real world and i think that actually makes it relatively easier to teach because the attachment point to the real world is easier and we may be able to also get teachers from other disciplines let's say science maybe things like geography where they can use computational thinking and they may be able to help in teaching uh in a sense problem sets ways to think about it from that angle um uh, when uh, they wouldn't be able to teach a traditional math subject. So it's it's more challenging, it's different. And, and, and one of the comparisons I think, you know, as a CEO of a company, it's like you might have said in years gone by, you know, the sort of uh, traditional boss of a company, as we would have called it in the UK, where you basically ordered people around uh, and said, you do this now and you do that now. You know, there's been a change in any certainly any sophisticated high-tech company uh where you know it's a much more nuanced business being a ceo it's much more complicated and yes it's more challenging but i think the world's moved forward that's a great uh that's a great answer i appreciate that it it does require um a a curiosity and humility uh, the ability to introduce problems that don't have easy answers and with students to say, I don't know the answer to that. How might we approach that problem? Uh, so it, it does feel like a new, not just a new method, but a new mindset uh, to thinking about uh, mathematics and uh, computational thinking across the curriculum. 
and I think it needs a new, I mean, one thing we need to really help our, our educators with is confidence. I mean, I think this word confidence echoes around. And one of the problems with mathematics is, is sometimes our math teachers aren't confident because it's it's quite tough. And it's also, as you say, it's easy to be sort of, you know, proved wrong in a way that perhaps isn't in English language or in history or something right. in quite the same way. But I think we can really help with that. I also think actually that you know, if there are good, good aspects, if there can be good aspects of this, um, this, this horrific pandemic we're in at the moment, uh, people's comfort with remote instruction, remote learning, or at least the start of that, I think is quite helpful because I think even if you're in a classroom setting, I think the idea of beaming in others to help shouldn't be, in a sense, threatening to teachers. We should find a way to do that. It's, you know, it's like, sure. as I say, running a company, for example, it's not embarrassing for me to bring somebody in to help when I don't know the answer to something. And so I think we can we can restructure how we do that to add the confidence and to be able to help with that process. Uh, here's a strange tidbit on page 227. You say it's dumb to use the single-purpose calculators. I appreciated that. Um, please don't make your kids buy those $100, $200 single-purpose calculators, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean, again, it, this is a case where the real world has moved forward. You know, calculators right. were what people used, you know, 30 years ago. They were great machines. It's just that's not what they use now. No, it's silly. Don't do it. All right. Let's, uh, let's try to close with some uh, advice um, so this is going to be super scary for the math teachers that are listening or for the principals that know that's dumb to torture kids with endless calculation, but they're scared because they're in a, an idiotic test-based uh, accountability system where the only thing that matters is grade level proficiency as measured by a standardized test score. So for those people, um, how can they start around the edges to make their math education less idiotic? And how can they supplement it in ways that begin to bring kids into um, to, to computational thinking? So I think one way is to get this four-step process sort of ingrained in a useful, you know, just make sure that even with problems that seem quite simple, it's really good to think through this four-step process because I think that does a couple of things. I think it adds confidence even to the current, you know, what they've got to pass. But it also gives you the bigger picture. You're defining, you're abstracting, you're computing, you're interpreting. And then and you, can, you can use that across the curriculum. You can use that in English, in social studies, in well, science. As well, as well yes, because I, I would say those are subjects where you can have computational English, computational social science, and that is what's happening. And in fact, right. in universities, there's specifically, you know, courses and things like that. So so I would I would marry it up even that way. Um, and by the way, we've got a poster that you can kind of download. and It's is, a great poster. You know, nice sort of computational thinking post. So I, I, I would hang that on, on your wall. Yes. and. And I think point to different bits. I mean, the point of the poster was, you know, when you're in a particular part of solving a problem, point to that step. And so that's a sort of a process to fall back on. And I think this idea of, you know, when you get stuck, you fall back on it. So I think that confidence will just help, hopefully, even if you're you're doing your, 
your traditional math. I think the other the other way is is as much as possible try to start at least you know to some extent from a real world problem that might try and use the the machinery of maths that you're you're teaching at that moment. You know, you can't do that totally because of the maths that we're we're locked into right now because of the small number of tool sets, etc. But I think there are places where you know equations are useful. There are places where uh, looking at a curve is useful, um, and coming up with an idea of what that is. And I think putting it in context early will really help uh, everybody sort of focus on it. Another thing, you know, I'd love um, you know students, of course, and particularly students who want to go further. I mean, we've put up um, uh, online some computer-based maths modules that start from, so that, that's our, our computational thinking modules, where we've tried to start from a question we think, we hope uh, students will find somewhat interesting and work through those. And, and those are available um, both as sort of uh, individual online learning with videos and things, or they can be used by teachers as well. And so we're, we're, we just put a few of those up, uh, which we've been trying to build. Uh, and I suppose those are a, a way that if there is a spare time uh that i think is a powerful a powerful way to expose students to really what what the point of all of this is in the end so so those are a few sort of opening no, I, I appreciate openings. that Let, let's shift to uh the the advocacy question uh because with the with the book launch you've also launched a campaign called the maths fix campaign for core computational curriculum change so that's another great way to get involved is uh, from an advocacy standpoint. Uh, I didn't encourage all the educators listening uh, to, to check out this um, MFC uh, five change. Yes, we it's a and and you if you go to the mathfix.org, you can you can find it from from that front page uh, as well. Um, my purpose here was to say, you know, in the end, one of the problems is the people who want math to stay as it is uh, kind of have one voice to some extent. And for those folks that want to see a reform have, you know, have so many disparate voices, it's very tricky for policymakers to right. know what to do with that. And the point here was to have, uh, we've got five points that, that uh, in this um, campaign, where, where we're, we're hopefully things that people will find it easy to agree with. Uh, obviously, it's hard to agree. I, I would like it if people agreed with every single word in my book, but that's that's a tall order, uh, and I want people to be skeptical. So, but I do think that these five points, for many many people, will seem like uh, things they can agree with. And I think if we can go to policymakers and say, look, we've got a large body of of people who think that. This is a change we need to make. These five, these five aspects we can we can agree about. I think that will be very helpful in shifting uh, the risk because at the moment policymakers, you know, we shouldn't. We may always complain about our policymakers in different places. Certainly, UK we often do, but actually, it's a tough job knowing where to go next. And you you have a risk profile for yourself as to you know if I do this, I'm going to get into trouble from the folks voting for me or from teachers or from parents or from students or from universities and so i think that the more we can show there's a body who want have a consistent voice at least for you know core issues core values uh, i think that will be really really helpful in trying to make these important changes 
That's great advice. Uh, start where you can. Start with a, a local school, community conversation. If you can join a state conversation about uh, revising math standards and math assessments, that's great. Uh, if you can join your national association uh, of math teachers and begin the dialogue there, that's great. Uh, I think what you hear Conrad and I both saying is do what you can around the edges uh, in your school today to introduce more computational thinking and then look for ways that you can plug in uh, and make your voice heard uh, at, at, the, uh, at the policy level. Let us know how you get on as well. Yes, please do. Uh, check out the Maths Fix, um, an education blueprint for the AI age. Conrad, um, thanks so much for this book. It's really, really timely. It's really important. Um, we're we're going to keep encouraging people uh, to read this book and to get involved. Um, thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks very much. It's been a, a great talking to you. And I think we've uh, it's it's great to have an in-depth conversation on these topics. A big thanks to Conrad for joining us on this week's episode. We highly recommend giving a copy of his book, The Maths Fix, to your local school superintendent and start a community conversation about the math we require of our kids. For more, listen to episode 239, where Stanford's Joe Bowler talks about the importance of data science. We've got it linked in the show notes and on the blog. All right, listeners, that's it for this week's episode. But before you go, make sure you rate and review the podcast and hit subscribe so you're sure to get all of our future episodes as soon as they drop. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.